Chapter 5 of The Uncommercial Traveller. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. The Uncommercial Traveller by Charles Dickens. Chapter 5. Chapter 5 Poor Mercantile Jack. Is the sweet little cherub who sits smiling aloft and keeps watch on life of poor Jack commissioned to take charge of Mercantile Jack, as well as Jack of the National Navy? If not, who is? What is the cherub about, and what are we all about, when poor? Mercantile Jack is having his brains slowly knocked out by pennyweights aboard the brig Beelzebub, or the bark Bowie Knife, when he looks his last at that infernal craft with the first officer's iron boot-heel in his remaining eye, or with his dying body towed overboard in the ship's wake, while the cruel wounds in it do the multitudinous seas incarnadine. Is it unreasonable to entertain a belief that if, aboard the brig Beelzebub, or the bark Bowie-knife, the first officer did half the damage to cotton that he does to men? there would presently arise from both sides of the atlantic so vociferous an invocation of the sweet little cherub who sits calculating aloft keeping watch on the markets that pay that such vigilant cherub would with a winged sword have that gallant officer's organ of destructiveness out of his head in the space of a flash of lightning if it be unreasonable then am i the most unreasonable of men for i believe it with all my soul this was my thought as I walked the dock quays at Liverpool, keeping watch on poor mercantile Jack. Alas, for me! I have long outgrown the state of sweet little cherub, but there I was, and there mercantile Jack was, and very busy he was, and very cold he was, the snow yet lying in the frozen furrows of the land, and the north-east winds snipping off the tops of the little waves in the Mercy, and rolling them into hailstones to pelt him with mercantile jack was hard at it in the hard weather as he mostly is in all weathers poor jack he was girded to ship's masts and funnels of steamers like a forester to a great oak scraping and painting he was lying out on yards furling sails that tried to beat him off he was dimly discernible up in a world of giant cobwebs reefing and splicing he was faintly audible down in holds, stowing and unshipping cargo. He was winding round and round at capstans, melodious, monotonous, and drunk. He was of a diabolical aspect, with coaling for the antipodes. He was washing decks barefoot, with the breast of his red shirt open to the blast, though it was sharper than the knife in his leathern girdle. He was looking over bulwarks, all eyes and hair. He was standing by at the chute of the canard steamer, off to-morrow, as the stocks in trade of several butchers, poulterers, and fishmongers poured down into the ice-house. He was coming aboard of other vessels, with his kit in a tarpaulin bag, attended by plunderers to the very last moment of his shore-going existence. As though his senses, when released from the uproar of the elements, were under obligation to be confused by other turmoil, there was a rattling of wheels, a clattering of hoofs, a clashing of iron, a jolting of cotton and hides and casks and timber, an incessant deafening disturbance on the quays. That was the very madness of sound. 
and as in the midst of it he stood swaying about with his hair blown all manner of wild ways rather crazedly taking leave of his plunderers all the rigging in the docks was shrill in the wind and every little steamer coming and going across the mercy was sharp in its blowing off and every buoy in the river bobbed spitefully up and down as if there were a general taunting chorus of come along mercantile jack ill-lodged ill-fed ill-used hocused entrapped anticipated cleaned out come along poor mercantile jack and be tempest-tossed till you are drowned the uncommercial transaction which had brought me and jack together was this i had entered the liverpool police force that i might have a look at the various unlawful traps which are every night set for jack as my term of service in that distinguished corps was short and as my personal bias in the capacity of one of its members has ceased no suspicion will attach to my evidence that it is an admirable force besides that it is composed without favour of the best men that can be picked it is directed by an unusual intelligence its organization against fires i take to be much better than the metropolitan system and in all respects it tempers its remarkable vigilance with a still more remarkable discretion jack had knocked off work in the docks some hours and i had taken for purposes of identification a photograph likeness of a thief in the portrait room at our head police office on the whole he seemed rather complimented by the proceeding and i had been on police parade and the small band of the clock was moving on to ten when i took up my lantern to follow mr superintendent to the traps that were set for jack in mr superintendent i saw as anybody might a tall well-looking well-set-up man of a soldierly bearing with a cavalry air a good chest and a resolute but not by any means ungentle face he carried in his hand a plain black walking-stick of hard wood and whenever and wherever at any after-time of the night he struck it on the pavement with a ringing sound it instantly produced a whistle out of the darkness and a policeman to this remarkable stick i refer an air of mystery and magic which pervaded the whole of my perquisition among the traps that were set for jack we began by diving into the obscurest streets and lanes of the port suddenly pausing in a flow of cheerful discourse before a dead wall apparently some ten miles long mr superintendent struck upon the ground and the wall opened and shot out with military salute of hand to temple two policemen not in the least surprised themselves not in the least surprising mr superintendent all right sharp eye all right sir all right tramfoot all right sir is quick ear there here i am sir come with us yes sir so sharp eye went before and mr superintendent and i went next and tramfoot and quick ear marched as rear guard sharp eye i soon had occasion to remark had a skilful and quite professional way of opening doors touched latches delicately as if they were keys of musical instruments opened every door he touched as if he were perfectly confident that there was stolen property behind it instantly insinuated himself to prevent its being shut sharp eye opened several doors of traps that were set for jack but jack did not happen to be in any of them they were all such miserable places that really jack if i were you i would give them a wider berth 
In every trap, somebody was sitting over a fire, waiting for Jack. Now it was a crouching old woman, like the picture of the Norwood gypsy in the old sixpenny dream books. Now it was a crimp of the male sex, in a checked shirt and without a coat, reading a newspaper. Now it was a man crimp, and a woman crimp, who always introduced themselves as united in holy matrimony. Now it was Jack's delight, his unlovely Nan, but they were all waiting for Jack, and were all frightfully disappointed to see us. "'Who have you got upstairs here?' says Sharp Eye, generally, in the move-on tone. "'Nobody, sir. Sure not a blessed soul,' Irish feminine reply. "'What do you mean by nobody? Didn't I hear a woman's step go upstairs when my hand was on the latch?' "'Ah, sure then you're right, sir. I forgot her. Tis only Betty White, sir. Ah, you know Betty, sir. Come down, Betsy darlin' and say the gentleman generally betsy looks over the banisters the steep staircase is in the room with a forcible expression in her protesting face of an intention to compensate herself for the present trial by grinding jack finer than usual when he does come generally sharp eye turns to mr superintendent and says as if the subjects of his remarks were waxwork one of the worst sir this house is this woman has been indicted three times. This man's a regular bad one likewise. His real name is Peg. Gives himself out as Waterhouse. Never had such a name as Peg near me back, thin, since I was in this house. Be the good lard, says the woman. Generally, the man says nothing at all, but becomes exceedingly round-shouldered and pretends to read his newspaper with rapt attention. Generally, Sharp Eye directs our observation with a look to the prints and pictures that are invariably numerous on the walls. Always, Tramfoot and Quick Ear are taking notice on the doorstep. In default of Sharp Eye being acquainted with the exact individuality of any gentleman encountered, one of these two is sure to proclaim from the outer air, like a gruff specter, that Jackson is not Jackson, but knows himself to be Fogel or that Canlon is Walker's brother, against whom there was not sufficient evidence, or that the man who says he never was at sea, since he was a boy, came ashore from a voyage last Thursday, or sails tomorrow morning. And that is a bad class of man, you see, says Mr. Superintendent, when he got out into the dark again, and very difficult to deal with who, when he has made this place too hot to hold him, enters himself for a voyage as steward or cook, and is out of knowledge for months, and then turns up again worse than ever. When we had gone into many such houses, and had come out, always leaving everybody relapsing into waiting for Jack, we started off to a singing-house where Jack was expected to muster strong. The vocalization was taking place in a long, low room upstairs, at one end an orchestra of two performers and a small platform across the room a series of open pews for jack with an aisle down the middle at the other end a larger pew than the rest entitled snug and reserved for mates and similar good company about the room some amazing coffee-coloured pictures varnished an inch deep and some stuffed creatures in cases dotted among the audience, in snug and out of snug, the professionals, 
among them the celebrated comic favorite mr banjo bones looking very hideous with his blackened face and limp sugar-loaf hat beside him sipping rum and water mrs banjo bones in her natural colors a little heightened it was a friday night and friday night was considered not a good night for jack at any rate jack did not show in very great force even here though the house was one to which he much resorts and where a good deal of money is taken there was british jack a little maudlin and sleepy lolling over his empty glass as if he were trying to read his fortune at the bottom there was loafing jack of the stars and stripes rather an unpromising customer with his long nose lank cheek high cheekbones and nothing soft about him but his cabbage-leaf hat there was spanish jack with curls of black hair rings in his ears and a knife not far from his hand if you got into trouble with him there were maltese jack and jack of sweden and jack the finn looming through the smoke of their pipes and turning faces that looked as if they were carved out of dark wood towards the young lady dancing the hornpipe who found the platform so exceedingly small for it that I had a nervous expectation of seeing her, in the backward steps, disappear through the window. Still, if all hands had been got together, they would not have more than half filled the room. Observe, however, said Mr. Licensed Vittler, the host, that it was Friday night, and, besides, it was getting on for twelve, and Jack had gone aboard. A sharp and watchful man, Mr. Licensed Vittler, the host, with tight lips, and a complete edition of Cocker's arithmetic in each eye. Attended to his business himself, he said. Always on the spot, when he heard of talent, trusted nobody's account of it, but went off by rail to see it. If true talent, engaged it. Pounds a week for talent, four pound, five pound. Banjo Bones was undoubted talent. Hear this instrument that was going to play. It was real talent. In truth, it was very good, a kind of piano accordion played by a young girl of a delicate prettiness of face, figure, and dress that made the audience look coarser. She sang to the instrument, too, first a song about village bells and how they chimed, then a song about how I went to sea, winding up with an imitation of the bagpipes, which Mercantile Jack seemed to understand much the best. A good girl, said Mr. Licensed Vittler, kept herself select, sat in snug, not listening to the blandishments of mates, lived with mother, father dead, once a merchant well-to-do, but over-speculated himself, on delicate inquiry as to salary paid for item of talent under consideration, Mr. Vittler's pounds dropped suddenly to shillings. Still, it was a very comfortable thing for a young person like that, you know. She only went on six times a night, and was only required to be there from six at night to twelve. What was more conclusive was Mr. Vittler's assurance that he never allowed any language and never suffered any disturbance. Sharpeye confirmed the statement, and the order that prevailed was the best proof of it that could have been cited. So I came to the conclusion that poor mercantile Jack might do, as I am afraid he does, much worse than trust himself to Mr. Vittler and pass his evenings here. But we had not yet looked, Mr. Superintendent, said Tramfoot, receiving us in the street again with military salute, for Dark Jack. True, Tramfoot, ring the wonderful stick, 
rubbed the wonderful lantern, and caused the spirits of the stick and lantern to convey us to the darkies. There was no disappointment in the matter of Dark Jack. He was producible. The genie set us down in the little first floor of a little public house, and there, in a stiflingly close atmosphere, were Dark Jack, and Dark Jack's delight, his white, unlovely Nan, sitting against the wall all round the room. More than that, Dark Jack's delight was the least unlovely Nan, both morally and physically, that I saw that night. As a fiddle and tambourine band were sitting among the company, Quick Ear suggested, why not strike up? Ah, lads, said a negro sitting by the door, give the gemlin a darnce. Talk ye pardlers, jebim for em quadrille. This was the landlord in a Greek cap, and a dress half Greek and half English. As master of the ceremonies, he called all the figures, and occasionally addressed himself parenthetically, after this manner. When he was very loud, I use capitals. Now den, hoy, one, right and left. Put a steam man, give em powder. Ladies, chale, balloon say, lemonade. Two, add warns and go back. Gibel a breakdown. Shake it out o' yourselves. Keep a movil. Swing corners. Balloon say and lemonade. Hoy. Three. Gent come forward with a lady and go back. Hoppersite come forward and do what you can. Ayoy. Balloon say and little lemonade. Dat hair nigger by em fireplace. Hind a time. Shake it out o' yourselves. Gib el a breakdown. Now den. Hoy. Four. Lemonade. Balloon say, and swing four ladies meet in a middle. Four gents goes round em ladies. Four gents passes out under em ladies. Arms, swing, and lemonade, till a music can't play no more. Hoy, hoy. The mill dancers were all blacks, and one was an unusually powerful man of six feet three or four. The sound of their flat feet on the floor was as unlike the sound of white feet as their faces were unlike white faces. They towed and heeled, shuffled, double-shuffled, double-double-shuffled, covered the buckle, and beat the time out, rarely, dancing with a great show of teeth, and with a childish, good-humored enjoyment that was very prepossessing. They generally kept together, these poor fellows, said Mr. Superintendent, because they were at a disadvantage singly and liable to slights in the neighboring streets. But if I were light Jack, I should be very slow to interfere oppressively with dark Jack, for whenever I have had to do with him, I have found him a simple and a gentle fellow. Bearing this in mind, I asked his friendly permission to leave him restoration of beer, in wishing him good night, and thus it fell out that the last words I heard him say as I blundered down the worn stairs were, Jeblum's elf, ladies drinks fast. The night was now well on into the morning, but for miles and hours we explored a strange world, where nobody ever goes to bed, but everybody is eternally sitting up, waiting for Jack. This exploration was among a labyrinth of dismal courts and blind alleys called entries, kept in wonderful order by the police, 
and in much better order than by the corporation the want of gaslight in the most dangerous and infamous of these places being quite unworthy of so spirited a town i need describe but two or three of the houses in which jack was waited for as specimens of the rest many we attained by noisome passages so profoundly dark that we felt our way with our hands not one of the whole number we visited was without its show of prints and ornamental crockery the quantity of the latter set forth on little shelves and in little cases in otherwise wretched rooms indicating that mercantile jack must have an extraordinary fondness for crockery to necessitate so much of that bait in his traps among such garniture in one front parlor in the dead of the night four women were sitting by a fire one of them had a male child in her arms on a stool among them was a swarthy youth with a guitar who had evidently stopped playing when our footsteps were heard well i how do you do says mr superintendent looking about him pretty well sir and hope you gentlemen are going to treat us ladies now you have come to see us order there says sharp eye none of that says quick ear tramfoot outside is heard to confide to himself may gisson's lot this is and a bad un well says mr superintendent laying his hand on the shoulder of the swarthy youth and who's this antonio sir and what does he do here come to give us a bit of music no harm in that i suppose a young foreign sailor yes he's a spaniard you're a spaniard ain't you antonio me spanish and he don't know a word you say not he not if you was to talk to him till doomsday triumphantly as if it is redounded to the credit of the house will he play something oh yes if you like play something antonio you ain't ashamed to play something are you the cracked guitar raises the feeblest ghost of a tune, and three of the women keep time to it with their heads, and the fourth with the child. If Antonio has brought any money in with him, I am afraid he will never take it out, and it even strikes me that his jacket and guitar may be in a bad way. But the look of the young man and the tinkling of the instrument so change the place in a moment to a leaf out of Don Quixote that I wonder where his mule is stabled until he leaves off. I am bound to acknowledge, as it tends rather to my uncommercial confusion, that I occasioned a difficulty in this establishment by having taken the child in my arms. For on my offering to restore it to a ferocious joker not unstimulated by rum, who claimed to be its mother, that unnatural parent put her hands behind her, and declined to accept it backing into the fireplace, and very shrilly declaring, regardless of remonstrance from her friends, that she noted to be law that whoever took a child from its mother of his own will was bound to stick to it. The uncommercial sense of being in a rather ridiculous position, with a poor little child beginning to be frightened, was relieved by my worthy friend and fellow constable, Trampfoot who, laying hands on the article, as if it were a bottle, passed it on to the nearest woman, and bade her take hold of that. As we came out, the bottle was passed to the ferocious joker, and they all sat down, as before, including Antonio and the guitar. It was clear that there was no such thing as a nightcap to this baby's head, and that even he never went to bed, but was always kept up, and would grow up, kept up, 
waiting for Jack. Later still in the night, we came, by the court where the man was murdered, and by the other court across the street, into which his body was dragged, to another parlor in another entry, where several people were sitting round a fire in just the same way. It was a dirty and offensive place, with some ragged clothes drying in it, but there was a high shelf over the entrance door, to be out of the reach of marauding hands possibly, with two large white loaves on it, and a great piece of Cheshire cheese. Well, says Mr. Superintendent, with a comprehensive look all around, how do you do? Not much to boast of, sir, from the curtsying woman of the house. This is my good man, sir. You are not registered as a common lodging house? No, sir. Sharp Eye, in the move-on tone, puts in the pertinent inquiry. Then why ain't you? Ain't got no one here, Mr. Sharp Eye rejoined the woman and my good man together. But our own family. How many are you in family? The woman takes time to count, under pretense of coughing, and adds, as one scant of breath, Seven, sir. But she has missed one, so Sharp Eye, who knows all about it, says, Here's a young man here makes eight. Who ain't of your family? No, Mr. Sharp Eye, he's a weekly lodger. What does he do for a living? The young man here takes the reply upon himself, and shortly answers, "'Ain't got nothing to do.' The young man here is modestly brooding behind a damp apron pendant from a clothesline. As I glance at him, I become, but I don't know why, vaguely reminded of Woolwich, Chatham, Portsmouth, and Dover. When we get out, my respected fellow constable Sharpeye, addressing Mr. Superintendent, says, "'You noticed that young man, sir?' In at Darby's? Yes. What is he? Deserter, sir. Mr. Sharpeye further intimates that when we have done with his services, he will step back and take that young man, which in course of time he does, feeling at perfect ease about finding him and knowing for a moral certainty that nobody in that region will be gone to bed. Later still in the night, we came to another parlor up a step or two from the street, which was very cleanly, neatly, even tastefully kept, and in which, set forth on a draped chest of drawers, masking the staircase, was such a profusion of ornamental crockery that it would have furnished forth a handsome sail-booth at a fair. It backed up a stout old lady, Hogarth drew her exact likeness more than once, and a boy who was carefully writing a copy in a copy-book. "'Well, ma'am, how do you do?' "'Sweetly,' she can assure the dear gentleman. "'Sweetly, charmingly, charmingly, and overjoyed to see us. "'Why, this is a strange time for this boy to be writing his copy. "'In the middle of the night?' "'So it is, dear gentleman. "'Heaven bless your welcome faces, and send ye prosperous. "'But he has been to the play with a young friend for his diversion, "'and he combinates his improvement with entertainment "'by doing his school-writing afterwards. "'God be good to you.' "'The copy admonished human nature "'to subjugate the fire of every fierce desire. "'One might have thought it recommended stirring the fire. "'The old lady so approved it. "'There she sat,' rosily beaming at the copy-book and the boy, and invoking showers of blessings on our heads when we left her in the middle of the night, waiting for Jack. Later still in the night, we came to a nauseous room with an earth floor into which the refuse scum of an alley trickled. The stench of this habitation was abominable. 
the seeming poverty of it, diseased and dire. Yet, here again, was visitor or lodger, a man sitting before the fire, like the rest of them elsewhere, and apparently not distasteful to the mistress's niece, who was also before the fire. The mistress herself had the misfortune of being in jail. Three weird old women of transcendent ghastliness were at needlework at a table in this room, says Trampfoot to First Witch. What are you making? says she. Money bags. What are you making? retorts Tramfoot, a little off his balance. Bags to hold your money, says the witch, shaking her head and setting her teeth. You as has got it. She holds up a common cash bag, and on the table is a heap of such bags. Which two laughs at us? Which three scowls at us? Which sisterhood all? Stitch, stitch. First witch has a circle round each eye. I fancy it like the beginning of the development of a perverted diabolical halo, and that when it spreads all round her head, she will die in the odor of devilry. Tramfoot wishes to be informed what first witch has got behind the table, down by the side of her. There. Witches two and three croak angrily. Show him the child. She drags out a skinny little arm from a brown dust heap on the floor. Adjured not to disturb the child, she lets it drop again. Thus we find at last that there is one child in the world of entries who goes to bed, if this be bed. Mr. Superintendent asks how long are they going to work at those bags. How long? First witch repeats. Going to have supper presently. See the cups and saucers and the plates. Late? Aye, but we ask to arn our supper afore we eats it. Both the other witches repeat this after first witch, and take the uncommercial measurement with their eyes, as for a charmed winding-sheet. Some grim discourse ensues, referring to the mistress of the cave, who will be released from jail to-morrow. Witches pronounce Tramfoot right there, when he deems it a trying distance for the old lady to walk. She shall be fetched by niece in a spring cart. As I took a parting look at first witch in turning away, the red marks round her eyes seemed to have already grown larger, and she hungrily and thirstily looked out beyond me into the dark doorway to see if Jack was there. For Jack came even here, and the mistress had got into jail through deluding Jack. When I at last ended this night of travel and got to bed, I failed to keep my mind on comfortable thoughts of seamen's homes not overdone with strictness, and improved dock regulations giving Jack greater benefit of fire and candle aboard ship through my mind's wandering among the vermin I had seen. Afterwards, the same vermin ran all over my sleep. Evermore, when on a breezy day I see poor mercantile Jack running into port with a fair wind under all sail, I shall think of the unsleeping host of devourers who never go to bed and are always in their set traps waiting for him. End of chapter 5 Recording by William Tomko